The truth is the world is really a compositional mess, except for a building like the Taj Mahal, which is, just happens to be symmetrically perfect. <laughs> you walk into a forest or, you, or you're in a safari vehicle in Africa, or you're in the rim of the Grand Canyon, and there's, there's stuff everywhere. There's rocks and trees and bushes and clouds. And this photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going all over the world. We're going high art, we're going nature, we're going even electro-scanning microscopes here. We're talking with Jim Zuckerman. Jim, who is here in the States, was a contributing editor to Photographic Magazine for four decades. His work has been all over the place. It's been on the cover of Omni Magazine. He's been an outdoor photographer, National Geographic. If there is an outlet, you have probably seen Jim's work in there somewhere. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it, it is my pleasure. Jim, I am impressed. I, you look at, oh, everybody, you got to go to the website. That's just one of the rules here these days. You got to go to the website and look at jimzuckerman.com. It's J-I-M-Z-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-N.com. If it's possible to have a, a broad scope to somebody's work, you've got it. Every single kind of photography that I think is possible is showing up in your work. And it is dynamic. It's colorful. Uh, it's got a lot of real energy behind it. So I, I got to ask you, as I'm reading your website, and one of the first things I learned is that photography was not always your passion. You were actually studying to be a doctor. How do you get from wanting to be a doctor to photography? Well, my sister's boyfriend introduced me to the darkroom, and I just found that so exciting. He loaned me his camera before I had one, showed me how to use it, and I started taking pictures with it, and it was just, it just blew my mind. It was so exciting. And I thought to myself, I have got to do this. And so I made the switch, much to the dismay of my family, but, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as you can imagine, uh, but yeah. I never regretted it, n not, not for a, a minute. And I love photography from the beginning, and I still do, still have the passion. Oh, very cool. Did, did you remember what it was that turned you on with that, those early experiences? What is it about photography that said this has got a connection to something deep for you? It's a good question. I'm not sure if it was any one particular moment, but I can remember something that made me want to do special effects. And, and I, did, I, I did special effects for 10 years. Um, I kind of disdained normal photography. And the summer of 69, I was working in Pearl Harbor. It was a summer job between college semesters working on old World War II dry docks, maintaining them. And in one of the dry docks, I found a, a piece of broken red glass. It was from an old darkroom from the 40s. Mm -hmm. And I was just experimenting with color infrared film. And I, I realized that if, if you shoot through the glass, like a filter, you get one set of colors. And if you reflect in the glass, you get another set of colors. So you could, in, in essence, create a double exposure. 
And it was one of those moments where I had this wild double exposure with all kinds of colors. And I just went, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and so I just started experimenting with that. And I, and I, I was only happy when I was making pictures. So classes in college, genetics and anatomy and embryology and all the science classes I enjoyed, but it was the photography that made me excited. And so that's the route I took. It's an amazing story that your first experiences there have to do with, you know, bending light and infrared and that kind of stuff, because you know, many people's first experiences is closer to documentary or portrait or photojournalism or something like that. And, and you called out special effects as being one of your early loves. Why the, the manipulation of photos? Why the special effects instead of the tack sharp black and white news photo? As you mentioned, I do a lot of kinds of photography. In fact, mm -hmm. I don't know of any other photographer in the world that has the diversity that I do. There, there may be some, I just don't know them. The only genre that I really don't do is photojournalism. When I bought my very first camera in December of 1968, I did do some photojournalism downtown Los Angeles where I was living of homeless people and, and stuff. And I, you know, I, I still like those pictures, but it's the more artistic photography that draws me. That's where I live basically. And, and of course, Photoshop has revolutionized what I can do. You know, I, mm -hmm. I used to do all kinds of effects in the darkroom, copying slides and sandwiching images and high contrast film and all kinds of stuff. But Photoshop is just, you know, a quantum leap forward. Even today, you know, I, I create images sitting here at the computer. It, it knocks my socks off in, in the same way that the darkroom did so many years ago. I, I want to get into Photoshop a little bit. You teach classes on Photoshop. You teach workshops and stuff. I mean, you are clearly a master at it. But when we were talking earlier, you, you said something really interesting. You said, you know, you, you're always interested in the way people view your pictures, but then you made it more specific. You said the way they view them visually, psychologically, and emotionally. So if you are the author of those experiences, if you're the photographer, how do you, how do you conceive of the image for somebody's psychological viewing or emotional viewing? You know, what, what makes, in your world, a powerful image? Well, first, I don't think any artist, well, I'm sure there are exceptions, but most <laughs> artists create images, whether it's paintings or, or photographs, for themselves. I love this. I want to experiment with this, and so I'm going to do it. And if somebody else likes it, then great. And if they don't, well, I still like it. Mm -hmm. So... The creative process just comes to me. You, you asked what, what kind of images make me excited or, or what I go for. Uh -huh. Th there's, there's just so many. I can do something really artistic-bizarre with a portrait, and then I can take a landscape and make it so surreal it looks like it's from the planet Zorgon in the 49th sector. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so again, it's that, that love of almost all aspects of photography and all subjects. I, I, do, I do special effects with wildlife and with insects and with landscapes and architecture and ballerinas and even children. Um, mm -hmm. It's whatever piques my interest at the time. You know, I, I do a lot of 
looking uh, online with other people's photographs on Instagram and Facebook. And sometimes I'll see something that somebody else has created and go, what an incredible idea. And then I may start from there inspired by that and go off in a different direction and end up with a whole bunch of pictures I never would have had I not seen that one image. So the inspiration comes from all angles, so to speak. Very, very cool. Let me ask you about a couple images that you've got on your blog. And everybody, again, it's jimzuckerman.com. And one of the categories there is Jim's blog. And and this is sort of a Photoshop heavy one. This is the lady with the purple. Well, you you tell what it is in in your description. You've created fractals in in your computer. And then... Uh, and then laid them over a model, and you've smoothed. I mean, she looks like a, a Harlequin mask more than a living person. It's a really, really striking image, but it's a really compelling story, too. <laughs> Tell me where that idea came from and sort of walk me through the creation of that image. Okay, well, first, the young lady whom I photographed, in that picture, she does look like a mannequin because... <laughs> I, I mean, she, she's really beautiful. She's like now about, I think, 21, but then she was 16, so she's very young. And I applied the software Portrait Professional, and mm-hmm. that is software that can smooth the skin to porcelain-like feeling. And so that that's where I started. And then I, I'm just finishing up, actually, uh, this weekend, two different Photoshop classes. And the, the, the more advanced one, I call it Next Level. Photoshop Mm -hmm. training online. And I was looking for some examples to show the students what I can do with 3D, how you can combine 3D with 2D. And so I thought, well, let me take some of the fractals that I've created. And and by the way, there's a phenomenal program. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not made for computers. It's only made for the iPad or iPhone. I didn't buy it for many, many months because I thought, I don't want iPad quality but I tried it and it turns out that it's very high quality. So when I import them into Photoshop, they're like 64 megabytes. The program is called Frax, F-R-A-X. And you can create the most dazzling, beautiful fractals. So I took one of those and I put it into the 3D aspect of Photoshop and then I extruded it. You basically give it depth based upon the incredible shapes in graphic forms of the fractal. And that's what I combined with the model. I ran color through it too, using a gradient, mm-hmm. but it's the combination of that portrait with the, the 3D extruded fractal that made that image pretty amazing. I, I happen to say that when I put those two together and I started blending them, it's, it's one of those moments I sat back in my chair and just went, Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it, it, it is amazing. But when you were taking the pictures of the young model, you didn't have fractals in your head. I mean, I, t- tell me about the process of discovery yeah. here. That's a really, really good question. In my work, I don't know if this is true for other creators, but one of two things occurs. Either I start with an image in my mind and I do it, I conceive it, and then based upon the components I have, and then I put it together. And then sometimes, like with the the picture you're talking about, I was just playing. When I took a picture of that young lady, you're right, I wasn't thinking about fractals. I I was just thinking about taking a beautiful picture of her. Mm -hmm. But I have a, a photo library of 
I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of pictures, all, all organized and categorized. And if I'm wanting to be creative, I'll look through, let's say, portraits of, of a model. And I'll pick out some that I, you know, that just has the right graphic design that could be good in combination with something else. And then I'll look through something else. Could be tree branches, could be fractals, could be a million things. And then I'll put them together and say, okay, does this work? Does it work this way or does it work that way? You know, cut and paste, blend modes, various filters. Sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, sometimes it can be too busy, too much. And sometimes it turns out to be incredible. And that's what happened here. So again, I may have something preconceived and then I just do it. We can talk about examples where I did that. And then this, this particular portrait was kind of like a happy, creative accident. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is, as you said, you know, a, a really inspiring, dynamic picture. 180 degrees from that, but sitting right next to it on your website, <laughs> is the two-toed sloth. <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a shot you took. It. I mean, th- there could there could not be an image farther away uh, from yeah. from the other one, and yet you're still the guy sitting back there. So, I mean, I got two questions about the, the sloth picture. One, one is about taking the picture of the sloth, but then you talk about on your on your blog here. You talk about editing that shot, more specifically, editing the background versus anything to do with the animal. So, w- walk me through that one, if you would. What you always want is for the attention, the focus to to be directed to the subject. I learned that from Rembrandt in one of his paintings called The Night Watch. It's brown, muted tones. I saw this for the first time in in our museum in Amsterdam when I was 20, a long time ago. And he had the whole painting of of all the the men and figures around this one central figure, brown, muted tones, but the, the young girl who was the point of the painting was dressed in white and her skin was light. And so she really stood out and he wanted your attention to be directed to her. All of the men around her was just, just kind of supporting actors. Mm-hmm. And in photography, you want the same thing. So if you have elements that are distracting, that pulls your attention away from the subject, that's not ideal. And in this particular case that you're talking about, the sloth was in this tree and I was shooting up toward the sky and you could see the sky through the, 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 the leaves and there was a lot of very bright white uh, areas in the tree that drew the attention away from the animal. So in Photoshop, I took care of the problem. Never underestimate the power of a background to make or break a picture. You can have a great subject, whether it's a beautiful model, a beautiful animal, a compelling insect, or even a homeless person. You get a great subject, but if the background is busy and distracting, it takes your eyes away from the subject, then the picture doesn't work. And a lot of what I do in Photoshop is replace backgrounds, not just skies, but all kinds of backgrounds to, to make a picture that may be good, better or to, to take a picture that's not good at all and make it good. Well, what do you say to the purists out there who say the minute you replace a sky or, or you do something like that, it may be fine art, but it, it's got issues now. It's, it's got deception issues. Do you buy into that at all? Here's what I tell them. You have to decide 
whether you want to be a photojournalist or a photo artist. If you are the former, fine, don't change anything. If you want to play by those rules, that, that's okay by me. But if you want to be a photo artist, then you can be an artist and you can create whatever you want to create. That's my standard answer. And let, let me also add that for purists, they really aren't purists because, <laughs> no, no, listen, because assuming you define purists by what you see with your eyes, right? I, want, yep, I just want to yep. capture what I see with my eyes. Well, Scott, when was the last time you looked out of your eyes and saw shallow depth of field? Never. Never. You, you never look at a friend and go, oh, what a nice out-of-focus background, <laughs> right? <laughs> it doesn't happen. And so um, when was the last time you looked at a scene as if you're looking through a 14 millimeter? You don't. Yep. Or wh when do you look at a scene through a 500 millimeter and see telephoto compression? You don't. So my point is that photographs captured with photographic lenses are entirely a man-made construct. Mm -hmm. It's not what we see at all. And what about black and white? When was the last time you, you saw black and white? Right. Never. So purists are only purists given all of these changes in reality. If people want to use, you know, the lenses they have and not change anything in post-processing or not even post-process, hey, that's fine with me. But but I, I call myself a photo artist, and that means that w whether you're talking about wildlife or nature or architecture or anything else, even a person. Last week, I was going through some pictures of India. And I photographed a very pretty young girl, but for, for my taste, her face was a little bit too round. And so using Photoshop, uh, Liquify actually, under the filter menu, I narrowed her face ever so slightly and she looked a lot better. So uh, I reserve the right as a photo artist to do anything to my pictures. And if somebody asked me if I manipulated it, I tell them, yes, I did. Well, you, you, you know my blogs. I always do. Mm-hmm. That's, that's cool. You know, I'm looking at your galleries here, and, and other than the obvious jealousy I've got for all the places you've been, there, there's a couple of them that I want to talk about. And, and for those of you listening, the galleries are the natural world, romantic Europe, Americana, travel. Jim's favorites, we're getting there in a second, cityscapes. But on the travel one, I mean, my Lord, I, I, I haven't counted how many different countries you've been here to, been to here. <laughs> but if, if you had to pick one, I know it's unfair, but if you had to pick a place right now that is your favorite place to go shoot, a country, where, where would it be and why? Well, I'm often asked that, and it's really, really hard. Because, for example, with wildlife, I'd have to say Kenya. Okay. It, 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 it's a tie actually between Kenya and South Africa, but the wildlife is the best in the world. They got the most incredible mammals and birds of anywhere. And, but if you're talking about culture, then Indonesia sticks in my mind. My wife is from Indonesia. I've been there 32 times and uh, it's a very diverse country with a lot of great things to photograph. Everything from Balinese dancers to 
uh, active volcanoes, and it's remarkable. But then if there was one country that kind of has it all, in other words, phenomenal people, photography, phenomenal architecture, phenomenal birds and wildlife, India and, and festivals. Yeah, India is, is incredible. Uh, India is kind of a hard country to go to for some people because it's very poor and it's mm-hmm. not clean. But in, in fact, if you look at my pictures, I don't show any of that, any of the poverty or the, 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 the dirt. All, all I am interested in is the beauty. And there's a lot of beauty there. So I, I hate to, to not just pick one country, but those are my thoughts. I'm looking at your India shots right now, and they are beautiful. I mean, really, really dynamic use of color. Do you pre-think color? Do you you pre-think sort of the the vibrancy of your images? Or is this something, uh, sort of leading up to a second question here, or is this something that you correct and, and you really tweak when you get back to the computer? Both. You know, in the film days, once you took a picture on a, on a slide, there was nothing you could do. And right. film, film companies were always touting their latest film, Ektachrome, such and such. Now it has better reds. And Fuji would say, our film now has better greens. Well, <laughs> now you can have your cake and eat it too. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love color. Uh, when I was a kid, I was enthralled with a box of 64 colors and crayons. Little did I know I'd be using something called Photoshop <laughs> that had 16.7 million colors. So a lot of times I set up color. In India, you, that's so easy to do. You find some incredible doorway or incredibly painted building, and then you put a model in front with a sari that complements it or, or you know screams color like a yellow sari in front of a purple background <laughs> mm-hmm. you know yep that 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 just screams color and but with photoshop of course i can manipulate color to my heart's content i can make it very very subtle or i can make it very very loud and i i can change color so if, if i have a a red sari in, in front of a blue background, I can make that red, yellow, green, purple, whatever I want. So I, I, I do all of that. A lot of photo manip- uh, manipulation with color, but a lot of preconception of setting color scenarios up. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. You, you talk as if there are two complementary but distinct creative processes here. One where you're holding the camera in the hand and one when you're holding the mouse in your hand. Is it the same process or, or is it two that work together well? They work together well, but they are very different. When you're photographing, you preconceive in, in a different way than, you're, than you do in Photoshop. So I would say they're different, but they certainly work together because I I make them work together all the time. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm curious, you know, you said earlier you, you'll go through your catalog, and I am amazed sometimes. I'll be looking at pictures I've taken two or three years ago, and they are completely fresh again in a completely new way. And it's a very different process than being out in the field, for me at least, and, and, and looking for that next shot. It's more contemplative, it's more deliberate, but it requires that bit of distance, that, that bit of perspective. I want to switch over to one of your other galleries. I really like this one. This is the one called Jim's Favorites. And there's a couple of images here I got to ask you about. The first is, is the first one in the gallery. And that's the, the guy, it's probably a motorized parachute coming down over <laughs> the dunes. Tell me the story of that shot. Yeah. Serendipity happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, not as often as we'd like, perhaps. But yep. it it does happen, and it happened there. Uh, I was there with with a photography tour group. I, I've led tours to Namibia for many years, and we were at these incredible sand dunes, photographing this beautiful S curve. And I see something moving way up at the top, and I think, is that a person up there? And and so suddenly, you know, he stands up and runs and jumps off the dune and just sails back and forth perfectly in front of the dune. Sometimes he was on the right, and sometimes he was on the left, and I just waited till the perfect position. You know, people who know my Photoshop abilities probably assume I put him there, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't. He, he, he was definitely there, and it was just a stunning opportunity. I mean, Jim, looking at this, you've, you get, you've got the dunes, you've got this big S-curve, you've got all the light on the right, all the shadow on the left, the, the parasailer. I mean, with a red and white parachute, what better could you ask for? <laughs> uh, so, you know, sit, sitting right there. And then you've even got the magic of that tiny little tree uh, in, in the foreground, you know, know. offering some. So, I mean, all, all the ideas of light and line come together in this one. And I'm glad you told me it's serendipity because I, I like to believe that's, that's possible out the world that these images do just come along. It's a, I mean, I keep looking at this image and the blue of the sky versus the gold of the dunes and the dark, really, really remarkable image. Sitting right next to it on your gallery is one that I can't get away from, from all sorts of of, uh, reasons in in my own history. And that is the sailboat with the red sails. Let me just describe it for people. You you have an old school, two-masted sailing ship, right red sails sitting in front of a blue, when I say a blue iceberg, I'm, I'm not doing it even justice. You know, a light blue iceberg, which is itself sitting in front of a, a night sky. It is one of those images that, that you, you just sit and you stare at and, and you dream yourself inside of it and then you dream yourself you know looking at it again. This one, I would imagine, took a little bit of time at the computer, but <laughs> tell, me the sto- t- tell me the story. Uh, okay, well, first, the background is not a night sky. It's, it's just it's a, a mountain in very deep shade. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So okay. that huge iceberg, beautifully uh, formed, was on Lake Argentina, down in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. And the, the tall ship was photographed a few years ago off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia. Every spring, summer, and fall, and I, I don't know if COVID is going to affect it this year, but every year they have what they call the parade of ships. And mm-hmm. they anchor all up and down the Atlantic seaboard, uh, 
different ports, different years, could be Charleston, Norfolk, Boston, and, and up, up into Canada and so on. And so there's a whole assembly of beautiful classic sailing ships. And during the parade of ships, when they're all under sail, you can photograph them. And I hired, I, I got a few friends together and we chartered a fishing boat. That gave me maneuverability so I could cruise around the ships and get them from different angles. So I had a, a collection of ships um, and I had seen pictures online. I, I believe uh, the pictures were taken in Greenland of, a, of a, a sailing ship like this with red sails sailing amongst the icebergs. And I thought, oh, that's incredible. So I knew I had the ship with red sails. I had the background, but it took me a long time to get up the, I, I don't want to say guts, but uh, to, to devote the amount of time it took to cut that sailing ship out because it's not, it's not it's, you, you can't examine it very closely in high res on my website, but sailing ships have an enormous amount of rigging and they have rope ladders that you can climb up to the mass and do, do stuff. And so there were just lines and ropes everywhere. I, I had to have a talk with myself. Okay, this is the time you're going to make that image. And so it took me probably three hours, maybe longer, to make the selection to make it look believable. So mm -hmm. once I had that, I, I just pasted it in front of the iceberg and then made the realistic reflection so the boat was reflecting in the water as well. Well, it's it's compelling, just mesmerizing work. Thank um, you. I got I to gotta ask, I'm looking through all the ones that you have selected as your favorites, and the majority, if not the large majority, are wildlife pictures. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like that, that, that. Yeah, I know. T tell me about your love for wildlife here, because it, it's it's coming out everywhere here. Well, I, you know, there's just there's nothing like getting a great picture of a special animal. Could be a butterfly. Could be could be a snow leopard. Could be a Komodo dragon. I certainly love animals, and but of all the kinds of photography, I mean, if I get a great architecture shot, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. if, if I get a great portrait, it's exciting. But the level of excitement, at least for me, is greatly heightened with a great picture of an animal. For, you know, first of all, it's very challenging. I put on my website all the pictures that are good. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, I don't show the ones that are bad. You know, uh -huh. the, the ones that, that weren't in focus. So the animal blinked or there's a, a branch in the way or there's some kind of horrible distracting background that can't be gotten rid of, or, or I cut the ear off of, of an animal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just, I only show the good ones, but when, when I get it good, it just, I'm telling you, it raises my blood pressure. In a good way, I hope. Yeah, yeah, in, in a good way. <laughs> it, it's, it's the most exciting thing, you know, because anybody can walk into the grounds of the Taj Mahal and get a beautiful picture of that beautiful building. It's, it's great to be there. It's famous. Now you got it. Wonderful mm -hmm. experience. But it's not, it's not hard to get a great shot of lions mating, you know, where the male is emoting. Right. Uh, you know, that, that's special. 
And so it, so it just makes me excited, can I say? Oh, very cool. I, I want to ask you about teaching because you take a lot you, or you lead a lot of photo tours. You do a lot of teaching. And I understand teaching somebody the, the mechanics of Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever. But I'm reading on your website and, and you say, you know, my philosophy in leading photo, uh, photo tours is simple. The pictures are paramount. The people who travel with me know they will take the best pictures of their lives. But then you go on to say, my trips are not relaxing. We get up <laughs> early. We, st- we stay out late, you know, depending on the light. We deal with heat, cold, dust, long drives, bad roads. But it's all about taking photographs. Going back to the Taj Mahal, anybody can whip out an iPhone and get the same picture we've seen since birth of, of that building. Right. Can, can, can you teach, even, even in these workshops, even when you got them out there, can you teach artistic vision? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think to a degree you can. Well, I, I would say to, to a large degree. Um, I, I have affected and influenced lots and lots of people. I know that that many people credit the improvement of their photography to with, with me, with with my guidance, being on my tours or online teaching or re- even reading my books. It's easier in the field. I can give a presentation on composition, for example, and I can talk about the same thing that everybody talks about: rule of thirds, leading lines. Yep, yep. You know all that kind of stuff. But the truth is, the world is really a compositional mess, except for a building like the Taj Mahal, which is, just happens to be symmetrically perfect. <laughs> you walk into a forest, or, you, or you're in a safari vehicle in Africa, or you're in the rim of the Grand Canyon, and there's, there's stuff everywhere. There's rocks and trees and bushes and clouds and dirt and flowers and fallen logs and just just stuff. And so I've tried to glean what students of mine need to know, what they don't know, what they're not comfortable with. And I've been teaching for a long time. Uh-huh. And, and I've come up with suggestions, things that I point out, examples that I give that direct their focus to things before them other than the traditional, the leading line and the S-curves and, the, and, and that. For example... I learned back in the 70s from the great landscape photographer, David Munch, what I call the classic landscape technique. And, and what he taught me was, if you use, and I, I talked to him about this one day, I, I, he, he lectured and I was there and I went up and talked to him afterwards. And I, I mentioned this, this particular thing. His style was to use a wide angle lens and he would get very close to the foreground, like three, four, five feet use complete depth of field, and that made the foreground disproportionately large compared to the background. That was his trademark. He became famous for that. He made a great deal of money selling his beautiful landscapes because of that technique. So I adopted that. And so when I teach, I tell people that when you're doing landscapes, you're going to deal with a compositional mess in most cases. First, you need a background, let's say a mountain range or a glacier or a waterfall, then you need a foreground. And when you find an attractive foreground that could be a clump of flowers, a fallen log, a nice uh, rock texture or lichen or something like that, we're talking nature, of course, but, but you can use the same, the, the same 
technique with architecture and, and even, even uh, fashion, you make that foreground disproportionately large compared to the background and you have everything in focus. And so when I tell people this, they first, okay, there's our mountain range. Now, where is a foreground? Could it be a cactus? Could it be this, this clump of flowers here? And once you find that, that I think that helps people with their vision if they have trouble seeing untutored. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I just developed these, these ways of imparting basically the same information, but from a different angle. Oh, that, that's, I'd, I'd love to be in one of those classes. Speaking of which, I'm, I'm, again, you've got a trip coming up in July, if the COVID world allows, to Iceland. There are a couple places on the planet that are, you know, sort of like meccas for photographers. You, you got to go there just to see if you're as good as, as the landscape. <laughs> Tell me about, t- t- well, I mean, quite often, I think we all take pictures and we're not up to the challenge of the picture. We see it, we can, we understand it, but we cannot get, you know, the lens and, and sensor to see what we see. Tell me about Iceland. Why are you going there? What do you hope to be able to give everyone? So, Iceland has spectacular landscapes, unlike anywhere else in the world. I've done many tours in Iceland uh, in late winter, specifically so there's been months of cold and the ice caves are safe to go in, and ice caves are just spectacular. One of my all-time favorite things to shoot is blue ice. Mm-hmm. So they've got the ice, you know, black sand beach with giant chunks of ice on it. They've got beautiful mountain ranges. They've got the Aurora Borealis, spectacular waterfalls. If you're lucky enough, you might get a volcanic eruption, but that's only if you're lucky. <laughs> they have, you know, blue lagoons that, that are cyan-colored blue, bird life. There's just so much there. So with respect to how you preface that, I tell people that... They have to think as the lens sees. You can't look at the scene and then photograph it with, let's say, a wide-angle lens. Because a a wide-angle lens does not give you what you see, nor does it tell a photo. So you have to look at a scene thinking wide-angle and then thinking telephoto. So can I use a telephoto here to crop a certain aspect of the scene or would it be better with a wide angle with let's say a dominant foreground like i talked about just a few minutes ago so i tell people you've got to think as the lens sees otherwise it doesn't work so many times people will say to me and i'm sure you've heard this too you should have been there because my camera just just didn't capture what i saw (laughs) Well, it, it never captures what you see. You got to get over that. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have to say, I'm going to capture this as the camera sees it, as my 14 millimeter sees it, or my 70 to 200, or my macro lens. That's how you have to see the scene. Otherwise, you'll stagnate in your photography. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the, that's one of the, real good reasons for people to go out and shoot a lot, especially in the digital age, is to learn your equipment, to learn how your lenses work, to learn you know the, the capabilities so you can begin to see that kind of stuff. Jim, what are you working on now? Well, I'm 
putting on my website a few photography tours uh, domestically in the U.S. to try to deal with the hesitation of people traveling internationally. But I'm also looking forward to 2022, 2023, working on putting up more tours for the future when hopefully travel will be a lot easier. And I, I just got just a few days ago, actually, the Canon R5. So I'm learning that. That's kind of a learning curve. And I'm looking forward to shooting. Uh, one, one of the, my favorite things is birds in flight and nothing like capturing a, a bird in flight. So this camera is, is really great for that. I'm looking forward to going out and doing that. In fact, just just before we started our interview, I was thinking, I, I have some blue jays visiting a bird feeder. And I'm thinking, how best can I photograph them? I'm, I'm, my, my mind is always rolling with ideas. <laughs> that That is very cool. Well, thank you, sir. Th- this has been a, a wonderful and informative discussion. I enjoyed every bit of it. Well, thank you for that. You're very welcome. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.